T-J-T-J-T. Me, me, me. I mean, us, us, us. <laughs> How are you now, Jeremy? I'm doing grand, sir. It has been a nice, lovely week. I got to be honest. I, I don't know what happened to July. Like, I think March through June were dragging like nothing, nobody's business. July seems to have flown by. Is it the end of July? Yeah. Like now, literally. How? Right? Very weird. How are you doing? You look like you've been having some fun times. I've been out in the sun, pal. Yeah. Been out in the sun a lot. Nice. Yeah, but it's good. What I've uh, what I'm really this week again, much like last week, has been consumed by the podcast and trying to figure out how in in blazes I was going to come up with a list for this. So I've just been sitting on a beach thinking about movies. <laughs> I, I had one. I'm not going to go with sleepless night because that's a massive exaggeration, but I definitely had some late night research happening. The um, little bottle, a little bottle of Cabernet didn't hurt either. I'll tell you what was nice this week uh, is hockey came back. There was an exhibition game. And so I had hockey on and I was laying on my couch and I was researching movies. And I thought to myself, all is finally right with the world. Yeah, because you expect to have hockey in August with a completely new set of rules and teams that don't even really belong in the playoffs, like mine, and I'm not complaining. Of course, you know, totally, everything's totally normal. Nothing to see here. Listen, it was my team that wasn't was making a good charge for the playoffs but didn't look playoff bound that now might be playoff bound that was playing an exhibition in front of no fans, social distancing, not at all because they were fist fighting. And I was like, Okay, let's write a list about movies. Why not? <laughs> we could do top five hockey movies, but it's kind of like you do Slap Shots and you do Blades of Glory and you do... Maybe, and you do all three of the Mighty Ducks. Maybe the Mighty Ducks. Maybe the Happy Gilmore sort of gets a nod. And then you put Miracle on the top of the list and you're done. Game over. We just did a top five list and a top five list. This is the inception of top five. This was a good good podcast this week. Nice to see you. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we might as well get into it. Jeremy, what are we doing? What do we love this week again? Well, what we love this week is that Y2K was not the end of society, and we kept on going and made some great movies, and we love some of those movies because this is part three of a massive thing. Can you can you tell us about our ongoing the saga that we have here? Because it, it's, it's not a trilogy. Well, this is a trilogy, but it, it's like a saga coming. Yeah, we are really rolling down this five-part series. Uh, where we have, we've covered off on three, and this week we are going to do the best movies, the best summer blockbusters of the 2000s. And I will tell you that after last week specifically, of which I got some shade both from you and from others, uh, <laughs> I have really amended my opinion of what makes a blockbuster. Oh. So I've, I've, I've been able to remove myself from some of the other these are movies I really like that happen to be summer movies, and now I'm more focused in on was this a blockbuster or not. Fair enough. And have you learned anything more about the Enola Gray? Uh, the Enola Gay? Right. No. Okay. <laughs> All right. Now, before we dive in, let's remind our listeners of the Shawshank test. Uh, the Shawshank test is looking for, is there a movie that utterly defines the category so much so that it doesn't even belong in the top five list because it is like the asterisk. And we named that because Shawshank was in our most rewatchable movies and it's the most rewatchable movie. 
So uh, our rules for the blockbuster franchise sequence is we eliminated all Star Wars movies because Star Wars. But now that we're into the 2000s, it's time to eliminate another franchise, the MCU. That would be the Marvel Cinematic Universe for anyone not as nerdy as me and JT. Uh, but the Marvel movies are just, they dominate uh, the 2000s and 2010s. So we're, we're just s- skipping them out of the list. Yeah, there's just no way to do this and not have those be a problem. So I feel like it's it's probably the easiest thing to do. Uh, I think it'll be more of an issue for the next one, but I feel like establishing the rule now is probably better. Which, But then also leads to the question, is there anything else that is Shawshankable outside of Star Wars and MCU? Well, let's let's compare notes for a sec. And uh, I think it would be safe to say that uh, if you actually wanted to con- to include either the Hulk or the Incredible Hulk in your list, I, I will invite you to do such a thing. So those are technically MCU movies, but I- I'm giving you rights to them. Uh, appreciated, but, and uh, you know, just as a friend, just as a friend, just a friendly thing to do. <laughs> So I'm going to argue no, that there is not a single defining Shawshank movie from the, from the 2000s. I could, if pushed, pick a certain trilogy, but I don't really want to. And I'm going to mm. leave it sort of vague like that to see how you react. Uh, so I agree. I don't think there is one. Um, I think there's probably... I could make an argument for why there's two series of things that could maybe have found their way onto this one in its entirety, one not in its entirety. And well, actually no, technically neither would have been in their entirety. Now that I think about it, but I think for the argument and for the fun of this, I don't want to have any Shawshanks. Fair enough. And, and by the way, just so I know, was one of your series with five movies and the other with three. One was with three. The other one is actually with seven. Oh, seven. Seven. All right. Let me ponder that for a moment. I'll, I'll, I'll keep thinking about that while we go. Wait, no. Oh, oh, yeah. All right. Now I got you. I got you. Yeah. Wait, eight. <laughs> Is it eight? Yeah. If, if it's what I think you're thinking of. Seven books, but they made the last one into two. That's it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Same. Right. So what we're going to do this week like we did last week is we're going to do not summer movie pong which is when we go through a list of movies that we thought maybe might have been a summer movie, felt like it could have been a blockbuster, but turns out wasn't in the summer. Uh, we'll do this relatively quick. We'll just go back and forth. Uh, Jeremy, I will give you first nod. I'm going to open, and I will give a little bit of text on this one, and then we'll, we'll do the faster version in a second. I will open with, with, with a movie slash series that I actually knew was not summer movies, but I want to talk about them for a half a second just because I have to, because they would have been my Shawshank. They would have been my defining movies of the decade, and that would be the Lord of the Rings series. Yep. Okay. We can move on. Yeah. I just knew, like, I, I genuinely didn't put any of the Lord of the Rings on my list because I was like, Jeremy will cover this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, we're going to have to do some Lord of the Rings talking at some point. So it's fine. Now, let's, let's, not, uh, let's not get too sidetracked here, sir. All right. So my first one's the Lord of the Rings trilogy, all three. What you got? Uh, so I'm going to go with there is three of the movies we were just talking about, uh, which is the Harry Potter series. There are three specifically that I, I just assumed all of those would have been summer. And it turns out that they were like spattered from like November and then summer movies. Huh. So three of the Harry Potters. It was Sorcerer's Stone, Chamber of Secrets, Goblet of Fire. Interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, next one. And again, these are only the ones we thought were going to be summer. Uh, Borat. Oh, that's a fun one. 
That's fun. Uh, Ocean's Eleven felt very summery to me. That was on my list. Fifty First Dates felt like a good summer rom com. Oh, that would have been really good. Um, I had. I'm just going in order of, of date right now. But The Incredibles felt like that would have been a summer thing. Mm, here's one that not only wasn't a summer blockbuster, didn't really actually make that much money. Taken. Oh yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's I, that, for, that didn't make any of my lists. <laughs> but, but feels like a summer blockbuster, right? Feels like it would have been a blockbuster for sure. Uh, v for Vendetta felt like it might have been. That's a little darker. Like I wasn't. I could see why it wasn't, but it also felt like actiony, suspensey, whatever. That felt like a summer thing, but it wasn't. Casino Royale, mm, Smoking Aces, Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, love that. Uh, Three hundred. Interesting. Uh, Catch me if you can. I had that and removed it because I thought your friends would give me snark again about not having good lists. But I agree. Uh, Lion the Witch in the Wardrobe. Um, disappointing series. I, I think could have done so much with that. I think re- I hear they're rebooting, but I don't know what's going on. Uh, my last, my last one for the for this, and this this actually sort of sneaks in in a weird way. We might have to talk about it. It's X Two X Men United. So X Two technically premiered in April before okay. the summer blockbuster season, but the wide release happened in May during the blockbuster. Season. So I put it on my on that part of the list. Um, to follow the rules, because you know I don't like to break our rules, JT. Right. <laughs> right. Not yet in this podcast, at least. So, yeah. it, which is tough for me because it really was actually going to be one of my top fives. Because to me, it was a signature movie to um, to usher in the, the current era of comic book movies. Okay, that's fair. Um, so the only ones that I have, I have three more. Watchmen, I thought might have been, oh. but wasn't. Zombieland had someone written all over it to me and was not. Right. And then this one, I went back and forth. It has all of, this is the big one, which I'm surprised you didn't say, is Avatar. Well, given that these lists are movies we we really care for, I never seen Avatar. I was sort of expecting a little spit take right there, but uh, I've never seen Avatar. So because this is not a visual medium, I'm going to actually explain what just happened. I was having a quick sip of water and had to physically stop in my tracks because of all the people in my life who I consider to be actual film movie buffs, not fans. I'm, I'm even more of a fan than you are. You are into the genre. You are into the, like, the entire thing. You have favorite composers. How is it possible that you didn't see Avatar? Yeah, no, didn't see it. I have so many questions that we will do some other time. Shortest version ever is this. Uh, 3D stuff in general tends to give me headaches, um, so I don't love it. Um, Yeah, true. Just don't see it in 3D. I also don't like 3D. Just don't watch it in 3D. Right, but then every review of the movie that has ever come out is it's a 3D spectacle and a lousy movie. And I've seen Fern Gully. Oh, Fern Gully is a really fun, bad movie. Avatar is just a really fancy Fern Gully. Yeah, no, a- fair, accurate. Changed my mind. That's why it was like the 3D thing. I was like, well, I, I, I am. Intri- I was. Don't get me wrong. I was super intrigued, but the whole time I'm like, well, if I'm only seeing this movie just to see the 3D effects, eh. Um, I just never saw it. I just. Uh. Okay. Well, th- there you go. I had it on the list because it felt like. I was genuinely surprised it wasn't a summer blockbuster just because it, I mean, it's very James Cameron to come out in December. That's kind of his right. thing. 
But like, it also was just like, yeah, this should have been a summer movie. All the kids would have been going, whatever. But I guess they went on Christmas break. One would say it was un- unobtainable. <laughs> yes, I haven't even seen the movie. I can make that bad joke about it. That's why I don't need to see it. I don't want to diss on it. If you love it, that's cool. Again, not trying to yuck your yum here. I don't love it. It's two hours too long. It's definitely Fern Gully on steroids, but it was very like it. It felt like it would have been weird to not mention that it was one of the largest movies of all time and that it didn't come out in summer, given the kind of movie it was just fell odd to me. So Avatar is your favorite? Uh, it's my number one through three. Okay. <laughs> Well, sir, I'm pretty confident that I kicked off uh, the last decade for us. So I'm going to I'm going to pass the baton, Uh, which makes me very happy because I feel like this might be the longest conversation we're going to have today. And we might as well get it out of the way. My first movie is 33rd all time in adjusted domestic gross. I had one hundred eighty five million dollar budget. It made six hundred ninety eight million dollars and and by the way just to let our listeners know we have now normalized the list we're working from because we determined on the last one we were looking at slightly different lists and it's crazy we'll actually send you a link we'll include a link to the to the site we use and you can see how hard it is to figure out which which version of highest grossing of all time with domestic with international adjusted not anyhow so now we're back on the same list um i don't have a guess for you because this this i don't uh, what was the year? Uh, so this came out in, um, this was July 14th, 2008. Oh, I got it. Yeah. I'm, well, I think I'm going to go, I'm assuming you're going with Dark Knight. Yes. So this was the, the three of them. And this was basically, and there's two of them that fall into this, into this decade and one that falls into the next. Right. And of the two of them, to me, clearly it's the Dark Knight. I think we're going to do an interesting twist today because my first entry will be Batman Begins as the far superior of the trilogy. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. I couldn't disagree more. This is going to be fun. All right. Now, first, let's, let, but let's do it right now. Let's, let's make your case, or you don't have to make a case. We're not really debating something here. Uh, but let's, let's hear your love and, and some of the stuff you learned about Dark Knight. Okay. So this, to me, is the penultimate Chris Nolan film. Like from just everything about this is like screams what I think of with him. When I think about like literally because how it was written, how it was filmed specifically, um, the choices he did and didn't allow actors to make, uh, the way he approached the story. One of my favorite things about this, which I think is something that is done so poorly in the MCU in some instances and just in movies in general, is their intentional the fact that they just never addressed where Joker came from allowed him to just be a thing. Right. Right. They didn't do some weird, we're going to jam an origin story in the middle of this other thing. They just allowed him to just become this absolute psychotic thing that you didn't get to mess with. Right. Then aside from the the fact that he passed away, which I don't, it's weird because like the, your instinct is it got overblown. How good he was in this was overblown because of what happened. I don't think that's true. Heath Ledger absolutely was outrageous in this role. Um, I think specifically when you think about, excuse me, specifically when you think about where the Joker came from and what he was working off of and the, the route that he chose to go down, I just think everything about his portrayal of this, 
what he did to get into character, the fact that he used like Sid Vicious and uh, Malcolm McDowell's portrayal of Alex Large in, in A Clockwork Orange, all of this fun stuff that he did to craft what has now become, I think, sort of like the benchmark for great villain. Absolutely, I think uh, I, th- I think that's exceptionally well said, sir. I, I, you know, what was the uh, what was the Heath Ledger movie with where he's um, he's jousting and stuff? Uh, was it First Night? A Knight's Tale. Knight's Tale, which, by the way, underrated movie. underrated movie um if you watch the performance i actually haven't done these like back to back but if you really want the example of of how much ledger grew as an actor in fact is just watching these two performances he was good in knight's tale i think it was an easy role for a lot of actors to be in just sort of a casual dude whereas this role is just crazy intense and Every look on his face at every moment, like when he's walking away from the explosion, the pencil, all these moments, like he is so, I mean, the, he's erratic and like micro expressions are going on. It's amazing. I, I completely agree with everything you're saying on this point. So the other thing I love about this, the reason that I chose this instead of Batman Begins is because, so first of all, Heath Ledger, separate thing. That's incredible. It belongs on the pantheon of holy moly. That's an incredible performance. However, the rest of this movie for me also felt just like more, it felt more cohesive. Christian Bale felt like a better Batman in this movie to me um, and a more believable Bruce Wayne. Um, the fact that they did such a good job of sort of substantiating the relationship with Morgan Freeman and Michael Caine's characters in the first one, it just felt like it was ready. Whereas the first one, I felt like there was a lot of, I don't want to say trying to jam backstory in because they didn't. I thought the first one was appropriate. I thought they did a great job. And if it wasn't for The Dark Knight, I would say Batman Begins is an incredible film. Well, they, they both are very good. Like as far as this genre, they're both great. That being said, I think Aaron Eckhart in this, it was such a bummer that they killed him off because I think he would have been so good. Um, I actually think they underused Cillian Murphy, who's now gone on to like be pretty famous and like done a bunch of stuff with Peaky Blinders. Um, the rest of the cast, like I said, they felt more mature. They felt more natural. It didn't feel forced. It felt like the relationships were already sort of like married and, and well-established. Um, they also just did a lot of like fun stuff in this, but I just think overall for me, this was a more sort of cohesive, a little more campy in certain moments, but, but with Heath Ledger doing what he did with the established relationships and the ease of which the characters seemed to interact, this to me just felt like a better film. Love it. It's a good answer, sir. And I think, where I start kind of deviating on on why I why I'll, uh, why I don't like it quite as much as Batman Begins uh, is actually comes back to Aaron Eckhart's uh, Two Face um, part of the story is I just felt it adds on like know, about twenty minutes, 15, 20 minutes of story that you know he really did deserve his own movie. They could have easily just had him you know burnt up and just leave him alone. I think there was a little bloat there it felt like they didn't know how to end the movie. Uh, This is my biggest concern is I find that there's like a half hour where there should have been more like 10 minutes in the final, in the final uh, third act uh, of the story overall, introducing two face so late into it. Again, I think it would have been much better. You see him in hospital and maybe a post credit scene where you reveal that you're getting, we're getting some two face. Um, But by the way, this is like, if I, this is we're moving from i don't know like a 9.7 to a, like a 9.4 in my book it's not like oh that's a terrible movie how can you pick it right i agree well so can i give you no avatar you do that's no avatar. Uh, it's good in avatar people 
I do. So I want, I want to hear more about yours, but I want to give you, cause I pulled like two or three small quick facts yeah, about this specifically for you. So one Hans Zimmer. Hans Zimmer. I know. <laughs> well, well, I was going to talk about Hans Zimmer in mind. This is like Hans Zimmer 2.0. And it's, I think it's actually a really, really relevant bit about movie soundtracks, but I'm going to geek out okay. too much on that if we go too long. Okay, but so one of the things I thought was cool is there's a nine-minute suite that was composed just for the Joker, and it was based on two notes, D and C, huh. which I thought was kind of neat. I'm like, oh, that's like, a, that's like a nice little nod. And then also my one nerdy car fact, because as you know, I love cars. Um, so Bruce Wayne drives the Murcielago in this film, which is Spanish for that. <laughs> ah, that's cool. That's a little fact. Just wanted to drop those two. All right, now tell me why Batman, like, give me your Batman Begins narrative let's start with this cast for a moment christian bale michael kane liam neeson katie holmes gary oldman cillian murphy tom wilkinson rutger hauer ken watanabe morgan freeman it's just an amazing amazing cast the story is tight and what i mean by that is there's nothing wasted in this movie there's not a superfluous scene character development is strong i mean you like you said there was no intro to the joker there's not really an intro to this kind of casual lost his ways, Bruce Wayne. It just, it just happens and off you go. And I like that. I like the way they do his origin story without spending too much time doing an origin story. It just, what I mean, sorry, the, um, the death of his parents story. I didn't mean to say origin. The whole thing's the origin. Um, so there's that. I think the, what it did for comic book movies, right? Like, we have to bear in mind there wasn't such a thing as a gritty reboot. That didn't exist. So for me, just the notion that, that uh, Nolan did that and said, we're going to do this whole other way. In fact, uh, I am going to literally read a piece of trivia because I couldn't even paraphrase it in a better way than it was originally written. Before they shot the movie, Chris Nolan took the whole crew and they screened Blade Runner and then got up afterwards and basically said, now that's how we're going to make Batman. And I just think that little backstory ties it all together so nicely. By the way, you know the best cameo in Batman Begins? That would be a young Jack Gleason. Do you know who that actor is? Joffrey. Yeah. King Joffrey. The other amazing thing, by the way, if you go look at some of the nerdy trivia, and I won't go into it, is the casting what ifs. Everybody was up for this movie. Like, they talked to everybody. So the fact that they ended up with such an amazing cast... Like usually that doesn't happen. Usually when they go out and try to find lots of people for a thing, you end up with kind of a mediocre cast. Instead, you have a absolutely phenomenal cast. Uh, interesting little bit of trivia. This movie inspired the Casino Royale reboot and brought back James Bond. The producers, the Broccoli family while watching, it was like, Oh, all right, let's do this to bond. Basically. I, had, I didn't know that. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think as movies go, I do believe that Begins is a little tighter overall. I think it has a little less bloat. I think it knows what it wants to be very, very clearly. And there's something about that first time doing a thing so special. Um, Granted, I wish the rest of the DC movies weren't following in that gritty lead because as much as the gritty is good, I think I I like my my comic book movies to be a little more goofy fun. But... um, yeah, Begins as a special place. Also for me, when it came out, this was, what was it, 2005? Is that right? I think so. I think it was 05. 
Uh, I should have known that because I actually have it in a tab over here. Um, <laughs> let me pull that up. Yeah, 05 was right. So for me personally, I didn't even know it was coming. This was before the internet movie stuff was as big as it is today. And I was on vacation with some friends and we went to, we decided we're like, let's go check out this Batman movie. I didn't even know there was going to be a Batman movie. And so that also kind of gives it that little special happy place for me. Beautifully said. I have no arguments. I think it's a, it, the one thing I do think is interesting is I think it says something about how you and I watch movies in, in that I agree with you about the blow uh, in, in dark Knight, but for me, the performance is the performances are more important than the stuff that I would have done differently in the story. Fair enough. Like the fact that Aaron Eckhart didn't get his time on screen is frustrating to me, but I thought what he did have was so well done that I'm willing to forgive the writing because of how well he did in the 22 minutes that probably should have been a movie. Fair enough. And I think, um, I think again, you know, we're, we're the, the nice thing here is we're sort of debating like IPAs and stouts, not, Oh, you drink wine and I drink tequila. Yeah, they're both great. Yeah, like they're, they're, it's not like one was like really good and one was fine. They're both wonderful. If either of them are on, I'm watching. Exactly. All right, let's move on to number two. Okay, number two, May fifth, two thousand, two hundred fifty second all time for adjusted. I thought it would have been way higher. It had a hundred three million dollar budget, which I thought was a lot. Um, Ridley Scott, Gladiator. Yeah, Gladiator. Ah, interesting. So a couple things about Gladiator. And I'm not going to – everyone's seen it. If you haven't seen it, you're listening to the wrong podcast. (laughs) One of the things I'm most impressed by this movie all the time is that it was carried by mostly two actors. If you go back and look at the full cast, considering it's Ridley Scott, considering it's a $100 million budget, considering, 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 it's not star-studded. That's true. It's not some ridiculous Ocean's Eleven who's who. It's not Batman, like you just said, where it's like Morgan Freeman's on screen for less than 10 minutes and he's Morgan Freeman. Right. Like, this is mostly Russell Crowe and Joaquin Phoenix doing weird things with a random cast of other people, all of whom are accomplished actors, but not like stars. Uh, the other thing that so twelve Oscar nominations it, it won five, which is crazy. Right. This is this is before Russell Crowe. Like this is what made Russell Crowe Russell Crowe. Yeah, neither of these two were them yet. Russell right. Crowe got got the Oscar for this. Um, Joaquin Phoenix actually lost it to Benicio del Toro for Traffic, also a great flick. Ridley Scott also lost uh, Best Director to Soderbergh for Traffic, and then in an odd way, this won Best Picture, which usually those things don't happen. Right. So it's kind of a weird Oscar year. Uh, so a couple quick things about this one Mel Gibson was originally offered Maximus that would have been a very different movie a little bit so Oliver Reed who is a lovely actor and was for a very long time who played Proximo uh, died three weeks before principal photography so there there's a whole thread which I won't go down if you want to internet it internet it of like all of the reshoot the fact that they had a 25 million dollar insurance policy that they could have reshot all this stuff Ridley Scott decided not to like there's a bunch of scenes that are iconic now like Originally, Proximo was supposed to be the one who buried the figurines in the sand. There's just a lot of like interesting stuff. It wound up being a very different movie because Oliver Reed passed away. Wow, I didn't know that. Crazy, like crazy. I knew he, I knew that he had died. I didn't realize the effect it had on the actual like film. Uh, the other thing that I thought was perfect, and you could not have nailed this better. So there's another. So there's a very famous character who is one of lore, 
right, in television, I'll say it's in TV, not in movies, that was directly influenced by Commodus played, which is what Joaquin Phoenix played? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, sort of just going on how you asked it, I'm going to I'm gonna take a, a, a weird guess. I'm just going to go with um, Heisenberg. No, okay. but that's actually a good guess, though. Jack Leeson. <laughs> nice. After Commodus. <laughs> Very cool. I didn't know that. So a couple other quick things that I thought you would really enjoy. So first of all, like Russell Crowe's list of injuries on this set is hilarious. Like aggravated an Achilles tendon, broke a foot, broke a hip bone, popped a bunch of bicep tendons. Uh, there's two scenes in which he has blood on his face. Those are both real. Like he got backed into it by a horse and fell into the woods or something. Huh. Um, my favorite fun Jeremy facts, Hans Zimmer. He won, he won the Oscar for that one. Won the Oscar for this. Not only that, it's one of the best-selling movie soundtracks of all time. Yeah, I know that. <laughs> the other thing, this going back to something that you will, that I know you'll like, um, and I can't remember what you were saying it in reference to, but over twenty-seven thousand pieces of, of armor was made specifically for filming this. That was a that was a Lord of the Rings thing. That's one of the, again. It's this you know we're going to see this theme over and over again when the when the directors and producers decide do it right. The effects are noticeable. So glad to hear from me. Like, look, this was early on. There's a lot of other stuff. It felt like it, it sounds and feels like a summer movie to me. It has, it's a blockbuster for sure. It's Ridley Scott, right? It's big. It's epic. It's Hans Zimmer. There's all these crazy scenes. Did you ever read about the proposed sequel? No. <laughs> We're going to have to find ourselves a link to that. Had I known this was one of yours, I would have all of this at my fingertips. There was a proposed sequel. I'm pretty sure Maximus goes time traveling. And by the way, like not to now, but I think to like World War II or something like that. It, it's oh, it's one of those where you hear it and you're like, how could anyone think that that would be even remotely a good idea? That sounds absolutely horrible, and I hope they make it. It is the great glass elevator to the uh, to the to the to the Willy Wonka. Oh boy, I hope they make that. It would be so bad. I'd love every second of it. Yeah. All right, Jared. What's your next one? Um, let's see. Where to pick next? I'll stay in this sort of a uh, fantasy-ish genre, if if you will. Uh, I'm I'm sorry, I didn't get the year ready. Uh, but the movie came in 110th with 474 million adjusted. Dot dot dot. Uh, it is a franchise, and it is actually the 10th highest-grossing franchise of all time. It's based on a four-minute ride. Oh, Pirates of the Caribbean. Curse of the Black Pearl. Okay. Now, interesting, the reason they didn't just call it Pirates of the Caribbean, but added The Curse of the Black Pearl, was specifically so that they could make sequels. Originally, it was going to production under just the basic name, because that's what the ride was, and then, uh, and then they made the whole thing out of it. I love this movie. Absolutely adore it. Um, hate all the sequels, won't talk about them, uh, other than what I've already said, because I hate them that much. But I love this movie. It is, again, it fits my kind of i don't know what my i need i need some kind of rubric for all this it's a it's a mostly if not perfectly done story there's there's no extraneous stuff there's almost no cases of actors do or characters doing stupid moves or you know there's very little random coincidence that doesn't build plot it's just well done the comic relief is great and also not overbearing Right, I think sometimes these kind of movies. Actually, that's where the sequels I think go wrong. Is I think they lean too far into Jack Sparrow as a wonky dude, as opposed to this movie where Jack Sparrow is just an eccentric pirate. And I think mm. that's actually the fundamental conceit of the of the problem of the rest of the the franchise is that Jack Sparrow here 
I mean, there's almost, there's very little even mysticism. There's just the curse skeleton thing or not. Whereas the entire rest of the franchise just goes off the deep end, off, off, off to the end. What, what's, it's, it just, you know, there's some stranger tides or something. I don't know what it is. My coolest thing I learned along the way was that this almost got made in the 90s with a Steven Spielberg attached. And uh, I'll give you, well, I'm not going to give you any guesses. Here are the three people that Spielberg wanted as uh, Captain Jack Sparrow. Steve Martin, Robin Williams, or Bill Murray. Whoa. Right? Now, I'll be honest. I could see any of the three of them having pulled off a Jack Sparrow. Obviously not the one we have and not the one we love. But I actually would say that all three of them could have pulled off a very compelling, weird, eccentric pirate dude with crazy hair and tattoos and whatnot. Yeah, I think I can lean into two of them. I think Steve Martin would have been really hard. Like Steve Martin, I'm having a hard time envisioning. I love Steve Martin, but like I, it's it's he's two three amigos. He's too camp. I think it would have been that one. I would I have a hard time imagining the other ones. Like I mean Williams, I could see doing basically anything. Oh, I think he would have made it campy. I think that's what you would have had. You would have had a more um, Roxanne the jerk style. Yeah. Although if we're going to talk about Steve Martin, his prefer- think about the timing. Now we're in the early '90s. Uh, his performance in the LA Story. I think set the stage for kind of the second gen Steve Martin of a much, um, a much more subdued, but still, you know, great comedy actor. Uh, other, yeah. other weird thing. I never realized and put the, put it together that Zoe Saldana was in this. She is indeed. Yeah. I, I it's like, I completely forgot till I was went off and re re reread about it. Uh, I think also, by the way, since I do love the mu- music, one of the best scores of the past 20 years uh, may, may be my favorite new movie score that I actively listen to. Uh, it's such a, such a good iconic theme. I didn't know this until uh, some research is that they actually went back and reworked the Pirates of the Caribbean ride to, uh, to pay more homage to the movie. So the movie was this great homage to the, to the ride. And then they went back and they put in like, there's a Jack Sparrow in the ride. Now there didn't used to be one. There didn't used to be a Barbarossa or any of the, sort of plot points, but now they are. And having seen it uh, a couple of years ago with my kids, I had noticed it, but I actually thought it was just bad memory. I was like, Oh, maybe that's what it was this whole time. I didn't even know this, you know, the dreadlock character was in the, 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 the ride. No, he wasn't. They just made the whole thing up, but I don't mind. And I love it. Uh, it's Orlando Bloom's only other role outside of Lord of the Rings that I love him in. And he does a great job with it. Uh, lots of interesting trivia around Kira Knightley's performance. She was only 17 at the time, which I had yeah. no idea. Uh, she's quoted as saying she went to the set every day expecting to be fired. Uh, so I thought that was kind of interesting. So yeah, Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl. I am glad that this is on your list. I do not take the same issue that I think you take with the remaining ones. I agree that of them, this is easily the best. Um, I also agree that they definitely, they leaned a little too hard into the, let's just over-exaggerate everything from here on out. And it got worse with every film, like every, every version got worse. Um, but it's still fun. It's just a fun, like it's fun. This particular story is actually really good. And to your point, it's like, there's not a lot of potholes in this. Like it kind of is as a contained unit. It makes sense. It tracks the whole way through. Uh, I love it. I think it's a great pick. And I I had this and one other one included in like, well, this could have been on the list. Maybe, maybe not. Nice. 
I also, you know, your comment there, it's a fun movie. I think that's, that's also part of the, what makes it fun is that it is whimsical and fun. It doesn't take itself too seriously. And then, and, and again, where the other ones I, I again think go wrong is that they also start doing that. They take themselves so seriously with this world building approach. And it's like, you just didn't need to do that. Just tell us a fun story. We like fun stories. Yeah. It's almost like that series would have benefited from having smaller budgets. Maybe, maybe, you know, like, you don't need to make a whole thing. Just make a good story with the things you already kind of have, and it'll probably be good. Yeah, I think that's well said. All right, uh, let's move on. All right, well, all of uh, everybody who goes into the older generation that listens, strap in your seats. You're going to hate this one. Uh, <laughs> this came out on June 22nd of 2001. Uh, it's 438th in the all-time uh, adjusted for inflation. The budget was only $38 million. And it spawned what is probably one of the worst franchises in the history of film. But I'm not sorry. I love this movie. You know what it is? Vroom, vroom? Yeah, sure is. The Fast and the Furious. You mean uh, Point Break in Cars? Yeah, a really, really good generational seminal moment for car kids who were in high school when this came out. Like me, this movie matters. (laughs) Now, just so, just so you know, before you go into it, I saw it in the theaters, and I have seen every one of these movies in the theaters. So I love that. I, I might be the only person in their 40s who would say that. That's not true. Bill Simmons loves these movies. <laughs> uh, so I also saw this in the theaters more than once. Uh, but keeping in mind, this came out in 2001. I was a, uh, like a sophomore in high school. Oh, man. This must have been epic for you. Buddy, let me tell you, this was a game changer. Um, I was already a car kid, so like this, this could not have been more in my wheelhouse. Right. Then introduce early two thousands hip hop and like urban culture. Forget it. Forget it. I'm in. I'm all in. Rob Cohen, oddly enough, Daylight Dragonheart and the Skulls, otherwise not much of a thing. Yep. Um, what's impressive about this movie now is, first of all, thirty million dollars is not a lot of money to make like this kind of movie. You, you could barely make Wuthering Heights for that. <laughs> That's true. So Vin Diesel had done Pitch Black and Chronicles of Riddick, and then obviously had done like a lovely Saving Private Ryan thing, which we talked about. Also was in Boiler Room. Oh, yeah. One of my favorite kind of like random movies. That's a good description. Favorite random movie. Just, like it's not a great film. It's not a film. It's not. It's just good. I like it. It's, fun. it's just a movie I always liked. Yeah. Um, so if not Paul Walker, who had done Varsity Blues and She's All That and The Skulls with Rob Cohen, which is kind of how he landed this. Uh, if not Paul Walker, Mark Wahlberg, Christian Bale, Eminem were the three major three major guys that could have been in this movie. Nope, not one of them. Not even close. He, he needs to have that that baby face do gooder because that's the whole point. Yeah, Eminem and, and Mark Wahlberg would have been way too East Coast. This needed to be a Southern California looking, feeling kind of character. I could have seen maybe a Matthew McConaughey, maybe. A little, a little too old at this point already, but but yeah, probably. the right kind of demeanor of a person, you know? For sure. So then Jordana Brewster, who's Mia, right? So she had done all she had done at that point. So th- this is actually, I found really interesting. I didn't know this, even though I've seen this movie on a, like an embarrassing amount of times. Eliza Dushku, this was written for her. Oh. And she turned it down. Wow. After her, Natalie Portman, Sarah Michelle Gellar, Kirsten Dunst, Bijou Phillips, and Jessica Biel were all either auditioned or attached to this role. And Jordana Brewster gets it, who her resume was over 100 episodes of As the World Turns and nothing else. 
Of that entire list, the only one I could see is Jessica Biel. Maybe. Jessica Biel would have been fine, yeah. I think. Which is crazy. And then Michelle Rodriguez had two total acting credits of movies or fil- I've never heard of either. Like, not even kind of. Crazy. So, like, when you look back now, you're like, oh, that cast. No, no. Not a cast. This was not a cast. Vin Diesel was almost kind of a poor man's new Sylvester Stallone, but not really. And hadn't done any of the triple X Fast and Furious, babe, whatever Dennis baby thing he did when him and The Rock kept getting the same movie, but with different sports they were attached to. This particular dude, everything about this, just because of where I was in a point in time, like love cars, very quotable, like making family out of friends. Just like this is a well-told well condensed, very much like you just said with Pirates, that got worse and worse, hilariously so, by the way. I still love all the other movies, with the exception of Tokyo Drift and the one anything with Tyrese, I could be couldn't be bothered with. The thing I'll say, by the way, I'm gonna agree with you entirely. I actually think it's if it weren't a for lack of a better phrase, a stereotypical like cars, punk kids, gangster kind of thing. You would, people would look at this movie totally differently. Like it is a well put together movie. Again, story holds up, you know, a couple of little, little things here and there, but for the most part, tightly done. It's just, it's just good. The motivations make sense. Everybody, everybody makes sense in it. Uh, I like it a lot. Uh, it's, uh, if it makes you feel better also, it is the third to last of my backups list. I'll take it. (laughs) All right. For next on my list, we're going to 2002, a movie that ended up spawning not only a trilogy, but almost a whole second franchise in a way with a different actor ready to take over from, from said actor, which it is not the only franchise to do such a thing. Interestingly, the same actor who was poised to take over this role was poised to take over a different franchise. How weird movie trivia am I going with this, JT? It's pretty weird. Pretty weird. Okay. So the movie is The Bourne Identity. Oh. And the... Picker upper was supposed to be Jeremy Renner, who at the exact same time was being uh, dangled to pick up the Mission Impossible series. And there's there's a lot of different stories as to why that didn't happen. A lot of it comes down to because both basically It's like here come both, and oh, you get none. Um, but Born Identity was one of those movies that came on the scene, I think, out of nowhere, redefined spy movies in every way. Um, in fact, I'd argue showed us why even all the James Bonds after Casino Royale just don't quite hold up. I, I'd argue this better than all of those. Um, such a such a fun, interesting, clever, clever thriller, heist, spy, chase, etc. movie. A couple of interesting little factoids, if you will. You've seen this movie, right? Yeah. Okay. Do you like this movie? It's fun. Oh, all right. Fair enough. So this one. I, I want to hear like I'm. I'm not surprised to hear that you like it. It's it's a this particular one is very very well done. To me, it got a, it got a little stretchy as they kept making them. I was like, all right, like you're like you're basically just like a better Ethan Hunt. I get it. Like I was kind of over it uh, for some reason, and I don't have a good reason. I don't have a specific thing. This just this series never landed for me. They're fine. Yeah. I like them. I don't have issues with it. But like I would never if it's on, I might watch it because they're so well done. But like if people are like, oh, I love Bourne, I'm like, okay, cool. Well, interesting enough, this goes into my same as Pirates of the Caribbean. I think the sequels are unnecessary. I think actually the scripts in general for two and three are pretty pretty tight. But boy, I'm saying things are tight a lot. I've been watching that uh, that YouTube series a bunch. Um, 
the problem with the second and third candidly is just the the director greengrass did this shaky cam thing for two straight movies and i just i just can't watch that for too long i i like i like well shot movies shaky cam we don't need it like there no we don't it, it's very very good in very specific types of scenes where you really want to disorient your audience or maybe somebody's running or something like that but for the most part just just get yourself a tripod or something just you know just spring for that i'll buy you one i've actually never thought of this but i think you might have just actually materialized my issue with this which is i think the further the the next versions of this were all tryhards yeah and i just i i couldn't be bothered i'm like okay fine like it's one of those like I don't I didn't need to know some of the story. It's interesting. I think I think again as a trilogy goes and as a, as a, as an overall narrative arc goes, it's good. But it, I just didn't really need it. I didn't need to know the backstory of Treadstone. By the way, part of the backstory of Treadstone is that the director Doug Lyman, his father was in the NSA and ended up actually in the '80s was famous as the chief counsel for the Iran Iran Contra hearings, which you, oh. you clearly know nothing about. But uh, have you even heard of those? They, they teach those anymore? Do they even? I don't think they do. Probably not. Probably not. Uh, the first choice for Jason Bourne was uh, Brad Pitt. Uh, the next three were Russell Crowe, Matthew McConaughey, and Sylvester Stallone, which would have been awful. So bad. As much as I respect Mr. Stallone, he just, he just no. Bad. Not Brad Pitt. Uh, other, other cool bit of trivia. Did you like the movie Ronin? I did. Same crew entirely did both car chase scenes, which is interesting because they are both considered two of the better car chases we've had in this uh, in this century. That tracks because that scene in Ronan is so good, so good, so good. Uh, yeah, well, I didn't know that, but like now, I almost want to do a, a scene for scene and sort of like see just how close they are because now that now I'm thinking about it, they're probably pretty pretty close. pretty close. The um the things I love about this movie, by the way, the scene in the in the truck stop where he's talking uh, and and he's saying, you know, I know at top speed I could run for one mile without without running out of air. There's 13 people in the here. There's four great cars and that like whatever that scene is that. That sequence, I could watch it over and over again. It's so well done. It's it's really Matt Damon coming into a role in a way that I, I absolutely love. That like he owned it. And he just took over the screen. Um, the scene where he's in the embassy, walking around with the um, the fire escape map to just try to figure out how to get out of the building. Brilliantly done. Other things I like about this is um, I think the director did a phenomenal job of changing pacing throughout the movie. There are sequences that are very, very fast. And then there are others that are slow, slow builds, right? So he's running through the embassy. It's like a very determined, quick paced thing. And then all of a sudden he's outside and slowly trying to figure out how to get down from the uh, the fire escape. And then he's in the later on in the Clive Owen sequence where he's in this big field and they're sort of slowly stalking each other. And then all of a sudden they're running up and it's a quick action scene. I, I just... I haven't seen a lot of movies that do that where there are times where you think it's like a slow build spy movie, like a, like a Tinker Tailor soldier, soldier spy and other times where it's just straight up action thriller. So great cast again. Love the born identity. Totally dig it. Totally dig it. You just said Clive Owen's one of my absolute all time favorites, by the way. Yeah. He's got a quote in this. I, I, I should have wrote it down. It's something like he's only got three minutes of airtime. He was one of the top build actors in the movie and he's got to quote something like, yeah, they paid me to pretty much show up and put on sunglasses and look at the camera a couple of times. He's got like two lines, I think. Uh, but for me, he's like an iconic part of the movie. Yeah, well, that's that's how good of an actor he is. Yeah, 
I don't know why he isn't. He he's one of those actors. Like I really wish he had a franchise. Like he could be a Bond. He could be a. He, he could carry. I think. Yes. Yeah. So there, did you ever see Inside Man? Oh, oh yes. So that's one of those. Like you talk about, can we please make a sequel? That whole storyline, him as a person, that was like I was like that guy, make that guy, that guy. A thing. That guy. <laughs> Yeah. yeah yeah i i actually you know i don't want i don't want a sequel i just want that same crew to make a whole nother movie just like that one just do it again and then you can be like isn't this kind of like inside man yes yes it is yeah it is go just on. like it all right what's next for you sir okay so i'm gonna go let's see all right so i've done three so i've got i have a I'm, i have a struggle bus here because i have two animated and i don't know if i want both in um, this is not the time for decision making. This is the time for action. Let's go. Fine. All right. <clears throat> I'm going to go with neither of them for now. Oh, audible. So I'm going to go with one that is. This is my one surprise. I'm going to throw one surprise on the list. I just kind of wanted to throw one in there that didn't really belong, but kind of belong. It's a personal favorite movie. I'm sure you've seen it. You probably haven't seen it as many times as I have. Came out on June 27th of 2008. It is on the top 1,000. It's 739th all-time for adjusted for inflation. Okay. It was – the budget was only $75 million. Uh, it's I don't even know if I tell you who's in it, it's going to give it away. But I'll, I'll give you – I'll go one by one. We'll see. Do you have any guesses yet? Uh, I don't. Not at that number. No, I don't. So, baby James McAvoy. Wanted? Yeah. Wanted almost made my backup list. I think it's a great movie. This is a backup list for me, but I'm gonna I'm gonna wind up doing like a shout out for one of the. I don't want to have. I just it, it's a summer thing. I don't want to have two animated ones. It's hard. Fair. This movie. So Baby James McAvoy, which originally was supposed to be Ryan Philippe and then Dax Shepard, McAvoy got the role. They got rid of him and they brought him back because they wanted him to be more of like a runt. Which McAvoy killed this role. Oh, he's great in it. I couldn't. I couldn't even picture those other actors in it. No way. Angelina Jolie originally was, uh, so not originally, but also included Halle Berry, Jessica Biel, Jada Pinkett-Smith, and Beyonce all were up for Fox, and Angelina Jolie got it. I happen to think that her portrayal of Fox in this wound up being a lot of what she turned into in her next three or four action films. Fair enough. But I think the 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 ground was laid in Wanted because this was a BA character. She was so good in this. Right. Um, obviously, Morgan Freeman's the best. It's funny. It's funny. I didn't know Halle Berry. I'm thinking about Halle Berry in that role. I think she also could have pulled it off pretty well. So that was the only one. Uh, Beale, Pinkett Smith, Beyonce. No, no, no. Barry. Yeah. yeah, I could see it. I could totally see it. Although to be can to be to be fair. To be fair, to be fair, we haven't seen Beyonce really act. I'm, I'm kind of curious. I think she could play a badass character like this. I think she could. She was in Showgirls, so she did uh, like not show. No, what was the Dreamgirls? Totally different. Totally different. It's the Nola Gray. Yeah, uh, right. <laughs> so uh, also because he's one of my favorites, I love when he's in random movies. Little baby chubby Chris Pratt is in this movie, and it always makes me laugh because he's funny in this role too. Um, also, Terrence Stamp, who is one of my favorite working actors. He's great. He's so good, man. He's so good. OG General, General Zod, thank you. Also, Common was in this, and I brought up Smoking Aces earlier. Common was great in Smoking Aces. So this did have like two random Oscar noms. Who cares? This is an incredible stunt movie. Like The stunt work in this movie is no joke. 
It's really, really great action sequences. They're very well choreographed. The story, there's a couple small sort of like, what's happening right now? Couldn't they just do blanks? But for the most part, it's relatively tight. Yep. Uh, highly rewatchable. This almost made my rewatchable list. This is one of those great TNT, TBS, oh my gosh, it's on again. Let's watch it for the hundredth time. Uh, so two fun callbacks. One, so the neighboring movie, this was filmed in, do you know where it was filmed? Europe. Chicago. Right. So <laughs> similar, but not. At the same time they were filming this on Next Door, they were filming The Dark Knight. I was about to yell out Fugitive and then I'm like, no, that was last decade. So Morgan Freeman was in The Dark Knight. So he was walking in between the two sets as they filmed these two movies. Wow. That's cool. That's cool. The other cool thing is this was actually built, this was based on a, on a, a short comic series by a guy named Mark Miller. Uh, and he wandered onto the set of Batman on purpose and walked into the Bat Pod and was like physically removed from location. Really? <laughs> yeah. So fun fact, you'll know, but I'm going to do it every time that one of the fun names comes up. Do you know who did the score for this movie? I do not. Danny Elfman. Ah, who did Batman? which kind of felt a little bit like a big name for a small film. I'm like, oh, good, that's cool. But Danny Elfman was a big fan of the director's name, who I'm always going to forget. He's like a Russian dude who had done a bunch of weird stuff. It's funny. I pulled up the the the, the director as a guy named Timur Bekman, Bekmambetov. I've never yeah. heard that name before. But while looking at his background, he actually did a, a series called the, the Night Watch series, which is, I think, the number one a fantasy series to come out of Russia. And he, oh, really? he directed the first couple of movies. The movies are not good, unfortunately, but the book series is quite interesting. Oh, so I, I didn't look at that. I did not know that. And then one nerd note, because both you and I work in tech. Yep. So the woven fabric code that Morgan Freeman reads, do you know what the code actually is? No. It's ASCII. Nice. <laughs> nice. Wanted. I love it. I'm not, I'm not sorry, world. Wanted. I'm also glad to know, since your next one's animated, that we have a no duplicates list today. So I'm going to go to my, my bit of an oddball selection um, because I'm going to pick a movie that I, I haven't seen in a while. I don't know how well it holds up. I'm sure it holds up exceptionally well as the comedy it is, but probably couldn't be talked about too much in modern, the current times. Uh, 227th of all time uh, uh, box office, $513 million adjusted, spawned two terrible sequels. And uh, oh, you got one? You got it? The Hangover. That's right. Yeah. Uh, it, it's in that Apatow era of, of comedy. Uh, in fact, I had a semi backups, the, the Ricky Bobby story. That's not what it's called. Uh, 40 Year Old Virgin, Dodgeball, Wedding Crashers, all of these lists. But while I was looking through them, I just, there's something about the amount I remember laughing through the first hangover the first time I saw it. And also, again, maybe there's a common theme here. I think it brought something new to the way we tell comedies, right? It, it everything from craziness like Ken Jong to, I mean, the whole premise of the story. Uh, I didn't go deep on trivia because I think a lot of people, it, it, it's story's been well told, but you do know that Ed Helms actually doesn't have that tooth. Yeah. It's in that tooth. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's a funny little bit. So, you know, it's again, I know it's, uh, doesn't hold up or, or whatever we'd say, but at the time, I don't think any movie had made me laugh as hard for so long as this one. 
So it's funny. My two, I had two comedy backups, right? So I had two comedies and I had two animation animated ones. And I was like, I'll do one or two of both. I don't know. Cause wanted was really kind of a flyer. I didn't know if I wanted it and it was wedding crashers and it was the hangover. Nice. And the reason was for the exact same reasons you just said, I feel like wedding crashers because it was 2005. I think it set a new path. That's kind of a new path. It went on until the hangover and then the hangover for better or worse, it shaped the next 10 years of comedy. Absolutely. Like hundred percent. And that movie is regardless of, you know, not, Noted that it doesn't hold up in, in the inclusive world we live in now, but it like it's hysterical. Like it's out loud laugh still to this day. If I watch that, there are there are parts where you're going to laugh. Right, absolutely. It's hilarious. It's it's a great movie. It's a good buddy movie. Like you want to watch it with your friends. Right. You know what I mean? Like that's a good Alamo Draft House kind of movie where it's like, yeah, let's go like you know eat some wings and have some like a couple of beers and like watch a movie together. That's a great one. Are we allowed to do that yet? No. <laughs> All right. A couple of years from now, we'll start doing that again. So that's it. I don't, we don't need to belabor the point too long. Let's, uh, let's hear, uh, by the way, I have animated movies in my list here, not on my picks, but I, I'm going to be ready, ready with the guests in a moment. Okay. So I have two of them. Um, I don't know which one I'm going to do yet. I'm going to figure it out on the fly. I think I know both of them. Okay. Does one in both cases, the, I, the lead, not a human. Yes. Okay. In let's see what what brought them together. This could be interesting. Uh, they both were in the right between three hundred and three hundred fiftieth in the all time list. Yep. Okay. So I definitely know the movies, and you're choosing between Ratatouille and Wally. Correct. All right. So I'm gonna I'm gonna do a five A because this is my fifth one, right? I'm done. This is five. Yep. You, you can have them both, buddy. I give you both. I'm gonna do them both, but I'll do them both quick. Okay. So. Wally, I'm selecting. So first of all, six Oscar noms, incredible movie, whatever. Everybody, like, if you haven't seen it, I don't know. Again, I, I mean, it's the it. first ever future documentary, right? Exactly. <laughs> so this is an Andrew Stanton thing. Andrew Stanton, if you don't know, is like is Pixar. All of Toy Stories, Monsters Inc., Finding Nemo, John Carter. They all can't be winners, and then Finding Dory, right? So Wally and Evie. This story is so. Like the movie is beautiful. Absolutely. To be able to craft and truly execute on a non-speaking film for children is impossible. And they did it. And they didn't just do it. They did it seamlessly and beautifully and succinctly. And it's incredible. Evie. Which, by the way, do you know who who she was designed by? Zoe Saldana? Johnny Ives. Right. Of course. Apple, for those of you who don't know, he's like sort of the chief creative officer for Apple and was for a long time. I thought you actually meant after a person, and that's why. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's very funny, though. No, so there's a bunch of like weird, there's actually a lot of weird little nods to Apple in this, which makes sense because of Steve Jobs being on with Pixar. Um, Great Peter Gabriel song to this. I'm not going to go into it. It's a masterpiece. I mean, I, I honestly think of the past 20 years, I think you could hold up Wally as like one of the better films made. Like Absolutely. it's just, it's flawless, which is incredible. Agreed with everything you just said. It's, it is, and it might be one of the absolute best animated films literally of all time. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. Number six, by the way, number 63 on the list of top rated movies on IMDb in general, just number 63. Then I'm going to do, so Ratatouille is more of a personal one because I think that with the exception of like, Oliver and Company, which is my favorite Disney movie, 
like Ratatouille is, I'm a food, I'm such a foodie. I love Patton Oswald. I just think Ratatouille is like the sweetest, like just kindest, most beautifully put together. Like it's just so good. Everything about Ratatouille makes me so happy. Um, it's a, it's, it's a love letter to food, which is really sort of important to me for lack of a better term. Like I just love food culture and I love like good food. Uh, Anthony Bourdain, by the way, absolutely adored this movie and he's kind of a favorite of mine. Uh, Thomas Keller consulted on it, which I always thought was really interesting. I wanted to say that part. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> he, he, he wrote the recipe for he the did. dish. Which, by the way, was not actually ratatouille. Which did you, do you know that? Yeah. I right, mean, so. you could argue it's a deconstructed ratatouille. Well, it's actually the opposite. It's a constructed ratatouille okay, because con, confit, yeah, confit Bialdi is actually like thinner cuts and it's in a baking dish and whatever. But anyway, I really like food and I love French food specifically. So this movie is very important to me. That being said, uh, has all the fun Pixar stuff, which is also true for Wally. There's a lot of le- like layover there. John Ratzenberg, the Pizza Planet truck, A113. Um, one cool thing about this one is Bon Voyage makes a small appearance in this as a mime. And he's from The Incredibles, which always makes me laugh. Oh, I didn't know that. It's kind of a cool little like Pixar does a lot of that stuff. Right. It's always a Mickey Mouse stuff. Like Ratatouille is just it's. It's serious. Like there's, it, it really does. It, it handles a lot of very serious notes and it handles it really playfully and really whimsically, but it lands the plane. It lands the plane on all these really complex emotions and feelings and family dynamic and like where you belong in the world. And it does it so, so well. And it's a rat. And I just think there's something really beautiful about that storytelling and I love it. And that's it. That's my story. Nice. Uh, one of one of my favorite little things about Ratatouille is actually the director Brad Bird, who's only actually directed like straight up directed six movies, and if you go look at the list, it's The Iron Giant, The Incredibles, Ratatouille, out of nowhere, Mission Impossible: Ghost Protocol, which I would argue possibly the best of the franchise, not including the first. Um, I would agree. Tor- Tomorrowland, which I actually haven't seen and haven't heard great things about, and Incredibles two. So how, how amazing is that, uh, that little run? It's a pretty good run. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's bring in number five. Something else I realized, and that this will be my little quick reveal here. This is now 255th on the all-time list at 323 million. You got it? I'm so happy you have this because it was one of my back ones. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's a reboot. It uh, also kicks off a franchise. What's interesting is all five of my picks of the 2000s were the first movie in what become what became franchises. So I didn't do that deliberately. I just noticed it when I was done. But the movie is Star Trek. So good. The, the not the motion picture, just just Star Trek. J.J. Uh, Abrams did a phenomenal job bringing a series back. Uh, what's really interesting is that it is a full on reboot, and not just because of the way they they the story changes but it's a completely different Star Trek um, approach. So there's some great videos that do a lot of analyses on, on movies and such longer than we do. And one of them talks about the way the original Star Trek series worked, which was basically, it's a, it's a science TV show set in a sci-fi world, right? So an example is made that if you watch the old series, the first gen series, whenever they're in the, uh, the elevator, the transporter, not the transporter, the, the elevator that goes up or down or left or right or whatever, the amount of time spent in the elevator is exactly accurate for the amount of time the elevator needed to go from point A to point B. Whereas ever since, it's always been like, 
hey, let's get in the elevator. We'll talk for as long as the script demands, and then we'll move on with our scene. And uh, and and this movie is guilty of that, but it's okay because what JJ basically did is move Star Trek from being a science sci-fi movie to an action sci-fi movie, and I'm okay with that. Um, I think there's just enough respect and homage to uh, Roddenberry's creation here to really uh, accept it into the universe without, I mean, I'm sure there's many super fans who think it's terrible and all that, but I think it's just really fun and well done. And another absolutely ridiculous cast. Are you ready for this cast? I wrote this down again. I'm ready. Um, Chris Pine, Zachary Quinto, Eric Bana, Bruce Greenwood, uh, Carl Urban, another Lord of the Rings alum, uh, and probably, again, one of his... Actually, he was also in the, the Bourne movies. Look at that. Uh, Zoe Saldana. Uh, she was on my mind. That's why we're. That's why I brought that up. Simon Pegg. Um, uh, Anton Yelchin, who unfortunately passed. Uh, Winona Ryder has a cameo. Chris Hemsworth has a cameo. I mean, what a movie. You missed one. One big one. Leonard Nimoy. Oh yeah, sorry. Let me more. There's also John Cho. I sorry, I, I sort of started skipping ahead. There's a there's a lot of famous people in that movie. Um, yeah. Fun fun bit of trivia. It wasn't actually the first Star Trek. It was the second, the Into Darkness one. But after Into Darkness came out, is when J.J. Abrams' wife said to him, "Can you stop with all the lens flare?" <laughs> and that that is why the the more recent Abrams movies have far far less lens flare in them. That is so fun. And now I'll give you my what I think is the coolest bit of trivia of the movie itself. So there's a scene where uh, Pike, played by Bruce Greenwood, is talking to a young Kirk. This is before they're actually in the main movie. This is when they're back on Earth. And Kirk had had this fight and just kind of being a bit of an idiot. And Pike says to him, and I'm going to quote this, you know, your father was the captain of a starship for 12 minutes. He saved 800 lives, including your mother's and yours. I dare you to do better. And that's what gets Kirk into Kirk. The end sequence of this movie, uh, where when they go, well, not the end sequence, sorry, the sequence where they end up destroying the space drill. Um, so it's sort of pivotal to the to the final part of the movie, but that sequence is exactly twelve minutes, and then he saves everyone on Earth. So the answer is, yeah, he did better. I just think that is the coolest. So cool, right? Oh, I didn't know that. That is so cool. So back to the movie again. I think it's well cast. I think it's well filmed. Good pacing. It's it's moving quick. It's got some. Th- this is probably my biggest plot hole ridden movie. I mean, the odds of being on the same planet with the other dude and landing in the exact same spot where you can actually see the thing happen on an entire planet. Like, I don't even think if you landed me on on this planet, I'd end up anywhere near my house. Right. So. <laughs> there's a bunch of those things that are annoying and do take away from, from what is otherwise a really, really well done uh, script, but there's nothing like these are the kind of reboots you want. These are the kind of reboots you, you get. They're just fun to see. They do interesting things with the stories, right? They make twists on things. You still have like your nods and your fan, your fan service with like a red shirt and things like that, but they're not too deep into it. They don't go overboard on it, uh, nor do they, sort of destroy the heritage where they came from. I think uh, I would actually argue that Star Trek might be one of the best reboots of, uh, of all film franchises. Yeah, I, I would agree. I, I love this pick. Um, there's Abrams is so good. 
so good. for a, for a number of reasons. But like we, we talked about this on the podcast last week too. The idea that you use the right tech at the right time for the right amount of time. Abrams is kind of like a he's a real pro at that. Like he doesn't over overdo any of that stuff. Uh, this one, I, I think this is really, I love this pick. The only fun stuff that I sort of know of lore is that Abrams emailed Simon Pegg and said, do you want to be Scotty? That's just how he got the role. <laughs> and, and Pegg like responded, I'll do it for free. He's like, I just, yes, of course I will. And there's kind of a cool Pegg and Abrams thing that we'll get into, I'm sure, in later podcasts. Um, the other thing I always thought was really cute, and I don't know if this is true or pretty sure it's true, Chris Pine, when he got the role, wrote a letter to Shatner and was like, hey, I hope I'm good. Like, am I good? And Shatner wrote him a letter back and said, you're the guy. Like, you're the guy for this. Go do this. Like, nice. have a good time. I always thought that was really, I hope that's true. I don't know if that's true. I hope that's true. <laughs> nice. I like that. Uh, it's, it, yeah, it's fun. One of those movies, it's totally rewatchable. You don't even have to be a Star Trek person. You just, it just... You can just watch this as like a fun sci-fi movie. And I'm not even, I was, I'm, I'm not a huge Star Trek guy. I've always enjoyed it, but it wasn't like a defining thing for me. Um, but it's, it's here it is. I'm not a Star Trek guy at all. And I, I had this, this was a backup for me. I love this. I thought it was great. So I, I definitely think this was good. There we go, Jer. We did it. I'm, I'm actually relooking my list right now. And I'm realizing the following, not only do all five of the movies I picked start franchises, of them, the only one that actually warrants the rest of its uh, franchise is the Batman one. <laughs> All of the rest, I would have been fine with just the one. Well, the 2000s, man, was rampant with it, right? Because yeah. like, there's a lot of them that started, but then also, like, there's just so many of the Harry Potters. There's the, the Lord of the Rings stuff. There's the Batman stuff. I mean, it's all of Fast and Furious, all of the Star Trek. Like, a lot of it really was when we got into... This is clearly the, the generation. That's clearly the decade, rather, before the MCU started. And you can see how now everything right. is just coming from somewhere else. Right. And then, yeah, this decade is like the trilogy or beyond, and then along comes Marvel and with a with the old "Hold My Beer." Exactly. And exactly. Twenty three exactly right. movies later. <laughs> All right. So let's let's go through. Is there one? Let's do one. We're not going to give any context. But is there one that would like, what would be your next one? And then we'll just do like the movie, the contention pong back and forth. So what was the one that you, if you could have snuck one more in, what would it have been? This is, it's funny that you, you asked this because I, I, I was pretty, I got to my five pretty quickly. All the rest sort of jumble in a difficult way. Uh, I had left, but I could easily swap this out for, for one of the next three. I had left Spider-Man, um, the Sam Raimi Spider-Man yep. in 39th of all time, by the way, $661 million. Yeah. Really? Mostly because I think it, just like uh, like I would have said with X2, really brought um, comic books to life in a way that hadn't been done before. Really, really compelling visuals and really paid, um, paid service to the work that had been done. I think a lot of the early misfires on, on comic book movies had been assuming that the source material was wasn't good. And what I liked about Spider-Man and, and actually again, if X2 had been a summer movie would absolutely have been the top five um, because X2 is exactly a comic book story put onto screen and so well done. And I think Spider-Man does most of that. Well, I just didn't love the, the take on as much as Defoe did a great job. I didn't like the green goblin suit thingy. I agree. Yeah. Okay. What about you? What's your, uh, I mean, you've already had your five A and B, but you know, what's your six? My, my sixth one, I, am, I, um, I love Hancock, man. It wouldn't be a summer movie for me if I didn't throw Will Smith on a list. <coughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm, 
<laughs> well, I'm having yeah. I don't, I don't, some kind of palpitations. <laughs> pa- listen, I'm not going to defend it because Peter Berg is a nightmare. This movie is filled with so many plot holes. It's not even funny, but it's Will Smith. It's summer and it came out on my birthday again. And I'm, I'm saying Hancock. <laughs> and, and Jason Bateman, who I love. You know, the thing I hated about Hancock is, the, is that they marketed it as this. It's actually one of my go-to storytellings of, 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 uh, of mismarketing. They marketed it as you've got this sort of drunk hero doing drunk hero things, throwing whales and doing all this crazy stuff. And that's like 4% of the movie. Yeah, this this movie suffers from a lot of mistakes as far as like how they positioned it, what they did and didn't decide to double click into, how they rushed through and then barely explain the origin of the two of them. But it's like, again, back to me and you, I actually do think this movie is so well acted. Will Smith, I thought, was brilliant. Agreed. I thought Charlize Theron was really, really good. I even like the kid in this movie. Jason Bateman's hysterical. Agreed. Like, it has all of the pieces of a good movie with a horrible script and really bad marketing. Fair enough. Let's go into our, <laughs> let's go do the little little ping pong here. And, and my next two, by the way, if, if going back to the previous question, were the ones that I have a hard time not making my sixth. So okay, so I don't have. I've got a couple that fall into that category, but I'm just going to run through the ones. And mine are in order of year, just because that's how I organize stuff, so it doesn't matter. Uh, road trip. Oh, also Todd Phillips. Cool. Uh, Minority yeah. Report. I actually really like that movie. Gone in 60 Seconds was hard for me to, to leave off. Uh, Italian Job. I have that on here. Swordfish. <laughs> Dodgeball. Uh, Troy. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It's horrible. I'm just kidding. I just wanted to say it because I wanted you to do what you just did, which is roll your eyes and be sad. Who knows at this point? Um, no, I will say, but again, Will Smith, this was another one, which is actually a better film. I, Robot iRobot's definitely a better film. Uh, yep. Wedding Crashers. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. District 9. Did you? I hated that movie. Um, I don't love it, but I, I think it did. Again, it, it hits my, like, just did really interesting stuff for storytelling and, and the way we That's think right. about sci-fi and the classism and all that kind of stuff. I just thought it was really clever. That's fair. Uh, this is kind of an underrated, uh, one of my favorite sort of, like, people don't know a lot about this movie, but I'm, I'm sure you've seen it. Layer Cake. Oh, interesting. I really like Layer Cake. Tropic Thunder. Which, which by the way, 158th just barely makes the top thousand. <laughs> uh, I'm, I already want to say this, but Transformers is a good summer movie. I, I can I can understand this because I know how old you were at the time, and and I, I would I would have done the same as someone who saw Transformers cartoons on TV growing up. The right. This is one of those, I think, um, I just really actually hated the way they took this franchise. I think they disrespected the concept at such a core level that I, I saw the first three and you know sat there hating it every second and still had to see all three, of course, and then finally gave up on the concept. I, listen, I totally get it. And this one came out, like, again, on my birthday, July 3rd. Yeah, so it was yeah. a thing. And it's, I don't know, I was old enough that this one is like, you know, I'm in my 20s at this point, but I wasn't, I wasn't a Transformers kid. So I, I, I brought no nostalgic into it. I get it. it. I get it's, it. It's a, it's a summer, it's a good summer movie. It's not a good movie. It's a good summer movie though. Yeah. I just, the, the whole like, uh, you, the whole, you can't tell what's going when you can't see what's happening on screen and know who each character are and then watching robots hide in backyards. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. come on. Yeah, all it's right, stupid. All right, it's really all stupid. Right. I won't go too, yeah. <laughs> 
Maybe we need a top five like movies we just hate because of what they were and then what they could have been. All right, uh, I I might have lost point on my list. Was did I already say Legally Blonde? No, you certainly didn't. I know it's weird, but it. I think it's a very very clever comedy. Very very smart movie. Man, my wife's gonna be so happy with you right now. Yay. So happy. I've never seen it, and I refuse to. Uh, I've got Superbad. Ricky Bobby. Yeah, Talladega Nights. I love that movie. Um, Get Smart. Nice. Uh, By the way, I've skipped a few that we've talked about, and the last one for me was uh, 40-Year-Old Virgin. Uh, That's a good one. So the only one, the only two that I have is uh, Step Brothers. Oh. And this one I struggled with because it's not my favorite of his work. He is clearly a favorite of mine. I've brought him up a lot in the past. And it came out on August 21st of 2009, but it didn't feel like a summer movie to me, but Inglorious Bastards. Oh, wow. That was 2009? Yeah, it feels like it was a lot more recent than that to me, but it wasn't. If you had asked me what year, I would have probably said like 2014. 14 or 15 was only my guess. For sure. So that one was like a back pocket. I'm like, this is a better movie than some of the other movies I'm saying, but I also, I don't want to fall back on Tarantino every time. And it doesn't feel like summer. It just feels like Tarantino. Fair enough. Fair enough. So, okay. That's it. I got no more. All right. That's good all list. Good list. Fun stuff. All right. I like the I like the brewing controversy. It's exciting. Yeah. This is uh this next I think the two thousand tens are gonna be hard because we've already covered off on what was a lot of those biggest movies started in this decade. Right. So now we're gonna have to go hunting. But I I, I like where I like where we're at. I, my favorite part today was definitely Batman Begins vs. Dark Knight. We yeah. should do a do we should do dueling pianos on purpose at some point. All right. We'll find a way to, to, to put that together. By the way, the at some point, I don't even know how I would introduce it to you, but um, having you watch the late 80s original Transformers movie from the animated series, which is one of the more devastating cartoon movies of all time because of what they did with the, the characters. Um, it just, I would be curious your reaction, but I don't even know. Like, I think the whole thing is like, why am I watching this? <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's all camp all the time. I'm into it. All right. Well, let's go to favorite thing on Wingman this week. Jeremy, what is yours? Um, my, my, my number two was the, the, the TikTok you found of the brothers dancing um, in sequence with each other. It was just, I watched it like 14 times in a row. It was just so, it was so well done and cute and all that. But my favorite one was uh, the guy, uh, I think it was Turkish, who paints on water. Just stunning, like the creations. And if you're watching how how the paint's moving while he's painting, it was just so cool. Yeah, it was incredibly cool. I almost ran to my bathtub and threw some paint in it. How about you? Um, I think my my favorite this week, so I'll I'll do two also. Uh, The sibling ones was great. Uh, the, the story about knowledge and the little kid not knowing how to shake hands makes me laugh so hard. That makes me laugh so hard. Yeah. Um, my favorite one, though, is going to be the best albums of 2020 so far, because even as a music kind of nerd, there's a bunch of stuff on there I didn't know. And any time that I can read something that sends me down a this is a like you know this is a path right this is the way that just sends you down somewhere else it's like oh cool and I've like now found three or four new artists which in turn will give me fifteen new artists so that's really good nice nice good pick awesome all right so Jared what are you excited for this week as we wrap up this coming week I mean I can't again I'm I'm sort of still flabbergasted that we're already hitting August. Um, Finishing up some other projects, having a good weekend ahead. Um, you know, not, not a monumental week, just a nice week ahead. How about you? 
Anything big? No, nothing big. Gonna spend uh, spend some time outside, spend some time on the beach. I took my daughter golfing this week, and she liked it, which is a huge win for me. So I'm going to see if we can't make that a thing. Otherwise, just hanging out, bud, getting ready for next week's podcast. That sounds great, man. I, I agree, by the way. I think uh, I think having the back and forth on a topic that was like near, near to us in different ways was really, really fun. And, and on that note, I'm just going to leave you with, I'm Batman. <laughs> Thanks for letting us be your man, everybody.